Welcome to podcast number five. Uh, this is the Starting Strength Channel. That's kind of our little name for our podcast thing. This is the fifth episode of the podcast, and I'm here today with Steph Bradford, and she and I are talking. And we were talking the other night on the way back from Durango. In order to avoid falling asleep on the highway, we were talking about training, and I know that's odd, but that's kind of what we do all the time. So we stumbled across an idea that I think has some implications for uh, rehab, and rehab is a topic that that I have uh, addressed in a couple of recent articles. Pissed a bunch of people off with uh, the allegation that physical therapy, as it is typically practiced in the United States and apparently across the world, is what I consider to be a form of fraud. It's very expensive and terribly, terribly, terribly ineffective. And it is it is almost as though these people are just willingly trying to not understand a couple of extremely basic concepts that involve stress, recovery, and adaptation. But to start off the discussion, what we need to talk about is 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 a thing that we were talking about in the truck, and that is the difference between uh, primary exercises, uh, the ones we use as the as the basis of barbell training, the squat, the press, the deadlift, the Olympic lifts, and to a less extent the the bench press, the types of exercises that take a weight and move that weight through space in a vertical line, a straight vertical line, the weight balanced over the point of balance on the floor of the midfoot. And the difference between that kind of an exercise and an assistance exercise like a barbell curl or a tricep extension, or for that matter, a, a physical therapy rehab exercise like a little three-pound dumbbell external rotation for an injured rotator cuff. What are the what are the differences between these two exercises? Well, pretty obviously, the primary lifts involve the whole system. They involve keeping keeping the load balanced through through the movement over the middle of the foot. Over the middle of the foot. Or the or the in the case of the bench press, the 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 center of balance, which would be the interface of the upper shoulders, the, essentially the scapulas with the bench press. But in the case of the press, the squat, the deadlift, the snatch, the clean. We're talking about an ideal movement that is a vertical line that operates the barbell parallel to the gravity vector. And in fact, if you'll notice, even if you're, you know, picking up an object and putting it on the counter, uh, you know, like a like a, a bottle of wine or something like that. That seems easy to talk about, doesn't it? Uh a bottle of maybe George T. Stagg off the table, putting it back on the counter. How do you handle that? Well, you keep it you, you keep you, it close to your body because you don't want to drop it. It is George T. Stagg. It is an extremely valuable thing. You don't want to drop it. In fact, if you'll notice, when you manipulate objects in a, in a workplace environment, what you typically try to do is to keep that object as close to your body as you can, and you don't do this consciously. It's just what you do. And, in fact, the heavier the object is, the more close to the center of balance, to your center of balance, you try to keep that object in an attempt to normalize the gravity vector with the center of balance. And this is just typical human movement pattern. And uh, what we do with the barbell curl 
if you'll think about it, is the complete opposite of that. You take a barbell curl and you manipulate the bar in your hands through an arc that intentionally swings it away from the center of of balance. Right. You make it hard by increasing the moment arm. How do you cheat it? When it gets heavy, when it gets up to 315, (laughs) what you'll do is you'll lay back. And the net effect of that layback is to get the barbell into the position it really wants to be to begin with, which is over the center of balance. And if you, uh, if you notice the progression from the empty bar to 95 pounds to 135 to 185 to two and a quarter to 315, what you'll see is a greater tendency as the weight gets heavy to, to lay back and normalize that bar path into a vertical line. Eventually, what you will do if the weight gets heavy enough, is you will lay back to the point where you're manipulating a barbell curl in the same vertical line that you carry a squat when it's heavy, a press when it's heavy, or a deadlift when it's heavy. Because this is how we operate as a system. That's just the physics of the issue, and it can't really be altered. Unless the weight is light. Unless the weight is light. Now, you can do a strict curl with an empty bar. As the weight gets heavier, the curl becomes less and less strict. What about an isolation exercise that is used in a rehab situation? Well, the same thing happens. I mean, initially, you can hold your, your position very specifically, and you can move the light weight, and then if you try to use that as a progression if you try to actually train it to use that to get stronger and you add weight to it what will happen is you won't be able to hold in position you'll start cheating the exercise just like you would a barbell curl heavier and heavier you'll shift your you know you may throw your hips into it you may shift the position of your joint as you move the object so instead of keeping an elbow fixed and just just rotating your humerus for example you start moving your elbow as you Go through that arc. Start pulling the elbow back in and try to normalize the movement over the gravity vector. You try to make the movement make more sense. Isolation movements essentially try to make your body move in an unnatural way. Instead of being efficient and keeping the leverage as minimized, what they do is they intentionally increase the leverage, move the bar away from or the the object away from your body. So it's, it's a very artificial way to move for two reasons. One, you're putting the object far from your body. Imagine your hand uh, rising up in a front raise. That's pretty unnatural. So it's, it's as far as using your body effectively because you're just using a tiny muscle, and your body would rather use you know, more muscle mass because it works better. Um, so the leverage is bad, and it's, it's an isolated joint. And again, you'll, the more joints and the more muscle mass you get in, the easier it is to move, and it just makes more sense to... I don't know, lift an object up next to your body, bending your arm it, in front it, of your face. It, it makes more sense. Front to, raise. Right, it makes more sense to keep the the load over the gra- over the ba- center of balance. Now, what happens if you are rehabbing an injured muscle belly? As the weight causes the injury to fatigue and hurt, what do you tend to do? And everybody does the same thing. Well, move the, away from using you, it. You you tend to move that 
dump, the three-pound dumbbell away from an arc and into a more vertical line because that's the easy way to move the thing. In other words, an isolation exercise depends on your ability to handle the load in a manner that is not really in keeping with the way that our bodies like to move loads, which is in vertical lines over the center of balance. And a rehab exercise is the same exact way. These unnatural rehab exercises that operate in isolation invariably use a a type of motion that is not really natural because isolation movements are not natural to the human body. When we do a squat, we squat down and stand back up with the barbell in a vertical line. All of the moment arms that come into existence as we squat down uh, along the segments, the back segment, the femoral segment, the shank, all of those moment arms are a function of just bending the joints in the way that causes the squat to occur. The load, though, is operated in a vertical line over the middle of the foot, the center of balance. And the heavier it gets, the more true that must be. You can't get a heavy weight very far out of line before the leverage becomes so disadvantageous that you drop, that you, you get into a position where you're stuck. But what is going on with all of the individual muscle bellies that are being used in the exercise? What happens to the hamstrings? What are they doing? Well, they're doing their job, whatever it anatomically is defined to be, as the levers operate through the normal range of motion in the way that that, uh, they typically function, straight up, straight down. What if one of those hamstring bellies is injured? What happens then? Well, this is, this is an interesting question because it, it addresses directly our version of rehab. Let's say the dog hurts his foot. What happens when the dog hurts his foot? You watch this happen all the time. Okay. Dog hurts his foot every week. What's every he week at least. Well, he comes limping up. When you first come up, he kind of runs and hops and keeps moving. If it's real hurt, he holds he, it up in the air. Right, he, he tries to stay off of it. You know, he's lame. He's obviously lame on on that foot. and uh, But he still moves around, and he uses it pretty much as much as he can. I mean, he's got four whole legs to distribute it over. So he's got three legs that are good and one leg that's bad. Right. But he's limping. Mm-hmm. Okay, what happens when he sees a rabbit? <laughs> he miraculously he, recovers. He, he heals up, doesn't he? Heals he heals up. He's motivated enough to use it anyway, even though it hurts. So what he does is he uses that injured foot in the context in which it is normally used, but he still limps a little bit. And what does that limp do? Takes some of the load off. Some of the load off, but it's still... It distributes it to the other three. To the other three. But it's still in a canter or whatever little gate he's using to chase the rabbit. He's still operating that injured piece in the way that piece is designed to operate as a part of the system. Now, dogs aside, what happens when you go to the physical therapist with a hamstring injury? To a physical therapist, a hamstring is a knee flexor. Mm -hmm. It's not a hip extensor, it's a knee flexor. So they would probably come up with some little way to isolate the hamstring in its knee flexion function with a very, very light weight 
and have it operate in, uh, in isolation with a couple of different exercises and then send you home. And our interpretation of that would be to think, what would the dog do? Well, the dog would keep using it within the context of the whole system. He wouldn't – well, I mean, he's a dog. So he he's has no dog. concept of isolation. He just knows he wants to move. Right. And that's how we approach, you know, all the exercises. They're movements. They're not muscle groups. They're not a joint we're concerned about. It's a whole movement. With rehab, we don't, we don't approach it any differently. What we do is we approach it as a whole system where now we have a component that's kind of the weak point. But the whole system protects – that point by providing support to that what is now the the weak point which is the limiting group now rather than taking it out of the system and trying to isolate it and we let the system we let it function within the system and let the uninjured components of the system protect it while it does its job now we just decided that human movements when you pick up a box of file paper off the floor, when you put a bar on your back and squat down, what humans like to do is operate the load as close to the center of balance as possible. When a squat gets heavy, the natural human movement is to ride the thing up and down in a straight line. When a box of file paper gets heavy, the natural thing to do is to pull it in as close to the center of balance as you can get it. When you're injured, what would be the natural thing to do? When you injure your hamstring, what we would have you do is use the hamstring in its normal function. Now, in the case of a deadlift or a squat, extensive intellectual discussion has led us to the opinion that the squat is primarily functioning isometrically to anchor the back angle in both of those movements. The squat, the hamstrings really don't change length that much, if at all, by virtue of the fact that when you squat down, as the hip flexes, the knee flexes. As the hamstring shortens distally, it lengthens proximally, so that there's really not much net change in the length of the hamstring. As such, the hamstring functions primarily isometrically, so that when it is injured, if it's going to function in a normal way, it's going to have to function in a squat or a deadlift instead of in isolation with a leg curl movement where only the distal function is worked in isolation. So you tear a hamstring. What do we do? We would have you wait a couple of days to the damn thing quits bleeding. And then if I was picking an exercise, I'd probably have you deadlift. And I might have that deadlift start at the top just for comfort's sake so that the movement that ends up happening would look more like a, an RDL from the top. But what I would do is I would have the, the empty bar, uh, a light weight, maybe something even lighter than that if the, if the injury is particularly severe, and I'd have you move through a normal range of motion with that, with that bar. I would obtain the work from volume because the weight has to be light. I would do a set of 20, 25 reps. And what I would do is I would allow the hamstrings that are not injured, the components of the, 
of the hamstring group that are not injured to handle the work that the injured component was not able to do. But I would have it occur in a normal range of motion and in the normal context of the quadriceps working at the same time, the glutes working at the same time, the adductors working at the same time, all of the components of the posterior chain that are not injured doing their job in that movement pattern. The weight that you handle during rehab would be limited by the pain of the injury, but the injured area would be worked just like the dog works it when he chases the rabbit with a limp the injured area is still working it's still functioning in the context in which it is designed to function and in that situation it heals both in a in a situation where it's protected by the uninjured components and where it is forced to do its normal anatomical job albeit with a very light weight What this allows you to do is stress the injury. The injury is receiving the stress. For the rest of the system, not so much of a stress. It's very light. You're doing high reps. It's not really a stress at all. The injury is receiving the stress, and that's key. It's receiving the stress in its normal environment. You're not taking it out of context and doing something different. You're still doing a normal movement, and it has the healthy parts working to keep everything safe and protecting it. Okay, so there's no relearning. There's no taking the piece out, trying to get it healed and strong, and then putting it back into normal movement. It stays in the normal movement, but it gets the stress. The stressed area is injury. And then what happens is you continue to heal and continue to adapt. Well, the stress can be modified. In other words, you're going to be going back to that heavier deadlift over time as the injury heals. It continues to receive the stress, and you can keep adding weight to it because exercise doesn't morph into something completely different as it starts to actually stress injury, which is what happens with isolation movements, injured or not. You start to cheat the movement. But the deadlift, you can keep loading and stressing until you eventually... Because of all of the other uninjured components that are able to take care of the of the part of the work that the injured part can't handle because it's injured. Right. Yet, the movement pattern stays normal And the injury is forced to heal in the pattern that it will ultimately function in again when it is healed. Now, let's let's talk about the the normal way we get strong in training as we apply a stress. We recover from that stress, and the process of doing so causes an adaptation that enables us to be stronger. How does this function in rehab? I kind of think that the problem is that... uh, Physical therapists and medical types consider the injury itself to be the stress. And that really isn't what's going on. Is If you have an injured piece of your body, if you have an injured hamstring, the injury was in fact a stress to which an adaptation has already taken place. The adaptation to the stress, it, it hurts, you're off of it. It hurts, you limp. It hurts, you don't work it. So the adaptation to that stress is essentially detraining because you're removing the stress from that compromised part. Right, resting. You're resting it, and the rest is a, is a response. The rest is actually a stress to which the system responds by detraining. Now, what is the role of a therapist? 
What should therapy do? It should be applying a stress to that injured component in order to drive it back toward normal function. And that stress has to be sufficient to cause an adaptation. But it also has to be the type of stress that will cause an adaptation back toward function in that the stress should be the same movement pattern that the injured part of the body uh, normally deals with. In other words, if your hamstrings function isometrically in the squat and the deadlift, then the best way to rehab for the squat and the deadlift would be to squat and deadlift, not to just use the distal function in isolation because that's not how it functions. Well, that's well, that's one problem with it is that you're you're trying to stress it in isolation. It's hard to do that effectively, and then you have to take it back in the whole system. The other big problem with that is trying to heal something in isolation and strengthen it in isolation doesn't prepare you for normal movement. What what do you see with people with injuries a lot of times? People that haven't done enough movement, what you see is a limp. A limp. I had a guy come in the gym one time, nine months post-op from an ACL reconstruction that was still limping, still did not have full range of motion in a knee that was essentially already healed. But it was healed wrong. Right. And guess to- what he'd done? The approach was so conservative. And so ineffective that it just didn't cause uh, a return to normal function. Well, it can the the way to have that, that he should have caused a return to normal function was to resume normal function with light loads. Right. Even if you're talking about walking and, and progressively increase those. Even if you're talking about walking. Even if you're talking about walking, what you do is you walk, walk without a limp as normally as possible. As you take smaller steps, you take them slower. And then you make them bigger, and you try to avoid the limp because the limp is what? That you're trying to offload it instead of loading it. Right. And if it's going to heal, it has to be loaded, or it will never return to function. You have to return it to function as soon as possible. In the case of an injured hamstring, that function is isometric through the squat or the deadlift. So you squat or you deadlift with light weights that will allow the hamstring to to do as much of the load as it can, and you're going to rely on the light load and the rest of the of the system in which it normally functions to balance out the load on that injury. Form must be absolutely correct because function must be absolutely correct, even if it's very light. And then the progressive nature of training takes over. Whatever weight we started with today, we're going to go up a little bit next time. And in this way, the injury is forced to heal. It's forced to heal in the way in which it will be used when it's healed because we're not going to allow it to do anything else. And what we find is, is when things are made to heal this way, things are rehabbed this way, it happens very, very quickly, much more effectively, and normal function is returned. And there are countless examples of this on the board. We've got guys just recently posting about hamstring injuries that were rehabbed in this extremely aggressive way, and everything's fine now. One thing it allows you to do, if you'll think about it, because, because you're, you're maintaining the normal context of movement, 
you can see the progress because it's tested every time. If you just rely on isolation movements, how do you know your squat is better? You don't. You haven't been starting from because you light haven't been squatting and going to heavy and doing that that symmetrical use and seeing that now your hamstring is able to take more and more and more of the load. You don't see that your hips are operating uh, symmetrically as you squat and the, the bar is in balance and you're controlling the load. So it provides the context where not only can you train it and apply the stress, but you can see the results there. You're not I trying would, to guess, is my, is my hamstring healed? You, you see it. See, I would, so, ask, I would ask the therapist if he was treating me in isolation, when can I go back to the full range of motion? And the answer would be, oh, four to six weeks. And then I would say, well, what, what kind of loads can I use when I go back? And guess what he'll tell you? Very light. Well, I could have done that four days after the injury. (laughs) I could have done that four days after the And not having wasted four to six weeks worth of time doing something that was, in fact, not returning my injured component to its normal function. Yeah, a time-based. Normal function returns an injured component to normal function. And that's just... That's the basis of the whole thing that we're, that we're talking about here. We appreciate your listening to our podcast number five, and uh, tell all your friends, okay? Till next time, bye-bye.